This is the War Room Roundtable podcast, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant businessmen and women on the planet. Hear their stories and get the most important business lessons they've learned on the road to success and get exclusive advice on how to implement their successes into your life and business. The War Room Roundtable is brought to you by your hosts, Jason Miller, CEO of Strategic Advisor Board, and Philip Lanos, CEO of Own the Rhythm, and former podcast host for Entrepreneur and Inc. Magazine. Welcome to the War Room. I'm Philip Lanos, and we've got Jason Miller here with us, and Ted McLyman. Now, Ted, how are you doing today? It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> nah, thank you for stopping by. Uh, I think we have an interesting conversation about financial well-being on a personal level and leadership skills that uh, we can really cover today. And uh, I was wondering if we could start with a question I like to al- always open a show with. I think it does a lot of important things. Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs yourself? I come from a blue-collar family from upstate New York small town that was noted for typewriters, dairy cows, and snow in that order. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, entrepreneurial in the sense that my my dad always worked for a small business, helped grow it, uh, very entrepreneurial in that, that respect, but not as a business owner. But all my siblings are entrepreneurial, and uh, as am I. Okay, right on. And so what was your first... Uh, foray into the world of entrepreneurship? Uh, well, I've been working with, with, with people and money my entire life. And either, I mean, where we grew up, the ethic was, if you want to eat, you want, you're going to work. <laughs> you know, it's one of those types of things. And, and the advantage, as I said, of growing up in central New York, there was always an opportunity to shovel snow. Not so much mow lawns, but shovel snow. <laughs> And, and I think that was my first foray that, that we would go out and chop ice, sh- shovel snow, but uh, always, always worked, always had to had a gig, always got something going on. And uh, when I came out of college, uh, I, you know, wanted to get out of upstate New York. Now, if you've ever been there, it's cold, dank, kind of miserable. And I decided the way to make that happen was join the Marine Corps, take a commission which is not terribly entrepreneurial, but I'll get, I'll come around to it. It was incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, didn't intend to stay, uh, but the Marine Corps had the foresight to send me to Hawaii, my first duty station, introduced to sunglasses, sunscreen, primary <laughs> colors, uh, temperatures above 90, you know, all this crazy stuff. And I got to see a picture of the world I had never seen before. Um, wow. But there I was really introduced to my first foray of young people making stupid money decisions at warp speed. <laughs> and part of my job as a, as a young Lieutenant was to go in and try to figure it out and help them dig out of some of the things that only young soldiers, Marines and airmen can do when they have money for the first time in their life in paradise. And we go from there. Well, I wasn't immune from this either. I did some crazy things. Uh, I actually bought a, my first car in Hawaii uh, at the end of the bar at the Oak Club in Kaneohe for a small amount of money, sight unseen. Uh, you know, that that's that is not the textbook approach 
to spending money you don't have. But it, it worked out all right. But to make a long story short, uh, I did not intend to stay in the Marine Corps. Put a letter to get in, uh, put a letter to get out. And they didn't accept the letter to get out. Found out I was an indentured servant. Had to take another set of orders. Uh, went to Japan and uh, married at that time. Took the family and we loved it. We got to interact on the economy with other cultures. And there, I really, really codified my belief that fundamentally we're all human and we do human things with money. It's influenced by our culture, our belief sets. But at the basic level, we're pretty much we're more alike than we are different. And that stuck with me. And as I moved around the world and, and saw different places and different things, that always resonated. While the Marine Corps then sent me to get my first graduate degree at Pepperdine. Payback was teaching economics at the Naval Academy. And there I found that it takes smart people to really screw up money. Uh, we had a very significant performance problem that a lot of our young ensigns and lieutenants were doing just really stupid things with money and losing their commissions, uh, security clearances, families. And that's what was my introduction to the technical aspect of behavioral economics. Uh, was an aide to the Secretary of the Navy for financial management, uh, head of training for the Marine Corps, picked up another uh, master's degree in performance uh, technology and human performance. And this is where the Marine Corps, don't think of it, it was very entrepreneurial. I was in, always in a position that they allowed me to more or less set my own career, follow my own path and do some really, really cool things I never could have done anyplace else organizationally. And there I codified my beliefs that my philosophy of life, which is have an open mind. You can learn something from everybody, a sense of humor, never take yourself too seriously. And coming to the military, some of the humor was a little darker than some people are comfortable with. Uh, and treat everybody with dignity. Uh, then get the job done, take care of your troops and leaders eat last. So that has been my dominant philosophy for my entire life. Well, with the Secretary of the Navy, I had the opportunity to work with the House and the Senate. And there I watched the political class just behave unbelievably with money. I know this is hard to believe. I know you wouldn't believe it. You think they're all rational decision takers with your money. Not so much. Um, retired and then really moved into the entrepreneurial uh, arena where I became a, a licensed financial advisor, independent financial advisor, open firm. My first firm in Washington, D.C. area then got fed up with the D.C. scene, moved it down to Augusta, Georgia, built two successful firms down there. I got very involved in all the entrepreneurial aspects of, of working with other entrepreneurs and helping them manage their money, but me building my practice in my firm. And there I had the revolution, revolutionary idea that we're dealing this money thing all backwards. Money has nothing, success with money has little to do with money. It has everything to do with behavior. And I wrote my first book uh, around 2008 in anticipation of the meltdown, where I was working with a lot of clients, most of which were small business owners and a lot of entrepreneurs, to prepare them for the behavioral aspect of moving into a significant recession and how to prepare for it. Because it became very obvious to me that my job was not to manage money. My job was to manage money behavior. And that was liberating and revolutionary at the time because I was trained that 
as a traditional econ finance guy, that we're all rational decision takers, that if you're given enough information, you'll come up with the right answer. And that's not true. It does not work that way. I also found working with a lot of entrepreneurs that entrepreneurs are we're, we're wired a little differently than some, maybe most. And I found that a lot of the 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 exercises that the traditional finance community was requiring entrepreneurs to perform, which was uh, you know budget drills and spreadsheets and and business plans, was not something they were naturally wired to do. And many had a lot of trouble with that basic concept. And that may got me into much deeper into the behavioral aspect of money. So I determined at that time, writing my first book, that we need to look at the problem differently. And even Adam Smith, back in 1759, with more moral sediments, his first book said money's about behavior. So what I started to grapple with was the post-World War II model of economics and finance and decision-taking was not working in a modern, modern digital world, and particularly for entrepreneurs that had at their fingertips incredibly powerful technology, but the way they were being told and taught traditionally to build their business wasn't working for them, and they were very frustrated. So... I started doing research and I came up with the following discovery that helped me greatly and helped a lot of my clients and helped a lot of the entrepreneurs I started working with is number one, our biology gets in the way of good money decisions. It appears that our brains are designed to keep us alive and pass on our genes, not do taxes, read the small <laughs> print, the small print on, on credit card statements, figure out compound interest or realize that you actually do have to pay back your credit cards. Our brains are eons old, the biology. We have a feeling brain and a thinking brain. I try to keep it really simple in my books. Our feeling brain is automatic, it's quick, it's multitasking, it's emotional. Our thinking brain, on the other hand, is the exception. It's our frontal lobe. It's, it's, it's more modern, but it's more deliberate. It's analytical. And you think about it, our brains have been around for millions of years. Money's been around for about 2,000. Money is a social construct. Money was designed to facilitate trade and interaction and commerce and communication. Well, somewhere between that revelation that it was too hard to make change with a chicken that we had to do some go some other direction and do something a little bit more meaningful, like fiat money, <laughs> and and then digital currency. That that we lost sight of the fact that fundamentally everything we talk about with performance, human behavior, has to be related to money. Money is a subset of human behavior. It's not an independent discipline that we put in some other institution that really smart, smart people that we don't let out in public talk about, okay? And, and intuitively, we know this. But I always found it amazing in my own business and in my writings, then when we got to the money piece, what happens is our brains just kind of shut down because we don't like it. We're not comfortable there. It's a, it's a forced thinking type of thing 
but but the model for traditional business, the model for entrepreneurship does not talk about natural behavior. It does not talk about the impact of our biology and our thought process, that we all are unique. It's it's I reject the mid-enlightenment period concept of the blank slate, if you will, that we're all blank slates. And if I just push enough in, I can change your behavior. It doesn't work that way. There are ways we are all wired that are unique to us that is a composite of our environment, our chromosomes, our past experiences and the like, and that's who we are. Then our belief set with money is well formulated by the age of, well, we start understanding money concepts by age three, by age seven, we pretty much understand economic concepts. And by middle school, you are pretty much set in your default behavior with money. So that's scary. So Philip, that means you still work with money the way you did in middle school. Oh, so man. I don't know if you had a mullet and answer jeans in that time, but you know, we won't pull, pull out the pictures. Well, the I think it's cool. really, it's really interesting though. Um, because when you look at, so you and I cut our teeth with the military and yep. all this stuff, right? And you start looking at some of those very first times we were exposed to money. And it's not like it was a lot back then anyway, but, but, <laughs> but <laughs> the, but it was interesting coming into the military and how poorly they really did. Uh, you know, because everybody drive downtown, you know, hey, we finance you want an up, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> for yeah. for a car or whatever. And then the next thing you know, you have all of these young soldiers that have never had the money before. They're going out and buying a nice car and it's 29% interest. And oh yeah, you know, or spending it other place other other places that are less desirable, which yes, we will talk about cost on here. Yeah. Right. So, so there's, there's all this dynamic around money. And the one thing I, I really, I've really seen from, from your perspective is it's almost like sales and sales. A lot of people will try to, you know, sell a feature and benefit and then, or uh, they'll try to sell logic. Right. Right. So, and, and you have to, it's emotion underpinned with logic, right? Absolutely. So, money is the same thing. If yeah. if we can, if we can, if we could just figure some of that out, and it's not like I don't think a lot of people have figured it out, but then it just becomes the mindset and relationship with money at that point. Oh, absolutely. You're you're absolutely correct. I mean, here's the way we've got to look at this: we are emotional animals who think. We're not thinking animals with emotions. The default is always emotional. And the, I mean, I got into this because of the behavior of young Marines and sailors and soldiers who were not fully developed cognitively. And we as an institution, were holding them accountable to, to traditional financial norms that were out of their realm of not only cognitive capability, but from a behavioral perspective, their, their, their belief set, most did not come from money and their culture. And the culture was, hey, I got money for the first time in my life. You're feeding me. You're giving me a place to stay. I know where I'm going to be from Monday to Friday. How hard can this be? And then as an institution, we were reactive, not proactive. There's nothing more exciting than holding Article 15 disciplinary action on somebody who's, who's broke, 
bounced a check and I'm going to fix it by taking money away from them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. that's kind of the mindset, but that's the mindset everywhere. Um, fundamentally, I believe that traditional financial literacy doesn't work. I mean, we can prove it. Just look around. It doesn't work. As a country, we're rated number 15 in the world in financial literacy. It's not a requirement in most schools. And most schools assume it's a linear process. If I can just teach you some things, give you some tools and techniques, and you pick the right product, life is going to be fine. Well, that's garbage. It doesn't work that way. So what I'm saying is we need to move towards what I call behavioral financial wellness. Behavioral financial wellness steps back and accepts the fact, number one, that we are all humans and we're all unique and we have a, a unique belief set and, and behavior, which incidentally, we accept in every other aspect of, of life, in coaching, wellness, diet, sports, but not money. That if we're going to move towards what I consider behavioral financial wellness, which is nothing more than peace of mind in your chosen lifestyle, that you're comfortable where you are and you can afford it. So I don't care if you're a goat herder or you're Elon Musk. It's all in line. It's very, very holistic. So it, it, it accepts the fact that you're uniquely wired with your behavior, that you have a belief set that is who you are. Now, it can be changed, but it's difficult. Just talk about diet and exercise. Culture, culture is hugely important. And modern technology amplifies that at warp speed. I mean, 20 years ago, nobody needed a complete stainless steel kitchen. But it wasn't until reality TV started around the late 2000s that everybody said, oh my gosh, I must be incompetent. I don't have a <laughs> French door stainless steel refrigerator to go along with my granite countertop that I didn't think I needed either. I guess I'll take the <laughs> avocado refrigerator I've had for 10 years and put it out in the garage. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a classic example of culture belief set. And the natural wiring of us as humans is herders. I mean, we are comfortable in the middle of the pack. That's the default. So if everybody's got one, you look around and go, why do you have this car? Well, because my neighbor non-consciously said I needed one. And that's what you do. So when you bring this all together, you have to realize that when we make money decisions, it's emotional. It's driven by a, a delightful hormone or a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And we've got the attention span of a goldfish when it comes to money, because when the dopamine hit drops down, we're done and we're on to the next one. So when I was looking at this, I came up with a model that helped my clients. And I think it's the way we need to start looking at money, which is different than I learned as a financial advisor. Financial advising is really a path to find you the best product to satisfy a goal that you think is relevant. We discount emotions, we discount all of that crazy stuff, and we just get you there. Well, that's a false argument. I need to start with a value discussion. The value discussion, I call it money values, and it's in the book. Uh, chapter five is, what are your money values? Money values are what are emotionally important to you. And if they don't happen, they will call you inks. And it's generally, I call it big V things. It's usually legacy family, giving back, making a difference. Seldom is it having the latest offering, you know, from Amazon or 
big, big house or something like that. Those are important. They are value driven, but I want to know what makes you tick. And if you want to know what your values are, show me your calendar and show me your bank statement. I'll, I'll tell you'll tell me where you're spending your time, which is value driven and how you spend your money, which is value driven. That's what's important to you. And then I don't judge as long as it's legal and moral. I don't care what you're doing. But if you tell me you want to change the world and have a, an orphanage in China and you're spending, you know, $2,500 a month playing golf, I can teach you how to do both, but you're probably not going to have the mission in China. You see what I mean? Because you value golf, which is fine, which is fine. Who am I to judge? Then what is your money, money temperament, your natural money temperament? In other words, how are you naturally wired? And this is where we got into at DreamSmart, that we've developed some very, very deep dive uh, tools to help us determine your natural behavior, your natural money temperament, and your entrepreneurial profile that goes much deeper than the traditional Myers-Briggs and the like that are situational. So once you understand who you are with your money, your money temperament, accept it as a financial advisor it seemed like my job was to beat you over the head every time I saw you to make you a 80-20 spender saver. You know what I mean? When in reality, that may not be how you're wired because you're naturally wired as a spender. You get emotional satisfaction out of that and that's your default. I don't care, but you need to know that because you need to take steps to moderate and mitigate if you're out at the extremes. Then money knowledge. Money knowledge is not technical knowledge. It's how do you process information? Are you a visual learner, auditory learner, tactile learner? Because in a consequential spending decision, you have to ensure that you're getting information in a manner that works for you, not the person giving it. And this is so important financial decision-taking because all financial decision has a compliance package written by lawyers that don't think and act like us. And that's why a lot of entrepreneurs, their heads blow up and they get in trouble because they are not wired to take in the information as it was presented. They never really get into it. And then they're surprised when it blows up. Next, money strategy. Money strategy is nothing more than having a value-driven look to the future that accommodates your natural money temperament and how you process information. Once you bring this together, then you go into the action step, which is your money plan, which incidentally is where most traditional financial literacy, financial planning, and financial discussions begin. So this is the front end that's missing. That's why financial behavioral wellness is so important. It's, you know what, it's interesting, Ted, and I, Philip, I want your, uh, I want your feedback on this because when you look in the room, it's the age gap we have like between me and Ted and you, it's a, it's a decent size age gap. So I, you know, in your life right now, how do you see all that forming in your life? I, I'm just curious from a different perspective from the younger generation, right? It is an interesting room in the sense that uh, we're, we're three different uh, times and places all coming yeah. together to have this conversation. But uh, Ted is speaking directly to my life experience in the sense that none of what I was taught from anyone or anywhere was directly correlated to any type of success in my life. All of it has happened through another way, through mistakes and 
still making them. Uh, and all of that is, is definitely something that I'm aware of. I catch myself making poor decisions sometimes financially, you know, uh, and then having to deal with that as those add up while you're still trying to take care of the other situations. And at the same time, uh, working with entrepreneurs and what I've seen from, from the thousand plus conversations I've had, not all of them are the same. And yeah, the ones that are more aligned towards money uh, or thinking logically don't always end up being the ones that have done the best with money. In fact, if there's anything I, I can agree with is that being intelligent doesn't necessarily make you good with money. Uh, that's just, uh, even, life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what really blows my mind. So when I'm listening to all this, I'm like, yeah, there's something to be said about this. There is a behavior issue at hand and not necessarily something that has to do with logic or you're good at math. Yeah. No, it's a behavior yeah, and this is what we're doing at Dream Smart. This is this is our initiative, and this is what I have in the book. Now, when I write a book, I write a book for people that will never buy a book about money but should. And I wrote the <laughs> book you should have read in school but didn't, and I don't talk about money. It's all based on stories of spending uh, scenarios and and at work where you're being bombarded with decision taking, which the intent is to make you understand that, wow, I've been in this situation. For example, one of the stories is you, you know, you, you go to the mall with a friend because they've got to pick up a suit or something that's being tailored in the process of going through there. You know, you quietly spend 250 bucks and stuff you didn't need and didn't intend to spend. And, and then you get home and try to figure out what it is, but it's too hard to take it back because you don't want to drive an hour and a half and it ends up in the garage sale. So, you know, that's life. Uh, now, I would say probably Jason and I have much more wisdom in you because we've run around a lot longer and we've made much more stupid and more direct spending choices through our life. Fortunately, True. my wife <laughs> documents those and it's a chronological list. It's more of a timeline that's in the three-line binder. And uh, But I we did this the hard way. You asked me before we got started, what are some of the lessons learned? The lessons learned is the con conventional knowledge, the, the orthodoxy that we get in school that of, of supposedly smart people in traditional institutions may not be appropriate for you. You have to sit back and challenge it. You have to challenge it from a couple directions. Number one, are, is this something that you're capable of even dealing with? I mean, for example, I have an automobile that has an internal congestion and combustion engine. It has oil in it someplace. I've never seen it. I have no interest in looking for it. There's a sticker on my window that says when the little number on my dashboard goes near there, I should call the guy down the street that really enjoys looking for oil in my car. I don't need a discussion on viscosity, on, on mechanical engineering, on the do's and the don'ts and what happens. I need to know, bang, I'm responsible. We don't do that with money. With money, we say, you're, oh, here's a classic example, and I don't want to disparage SCORE. If you don't know what SCORE is, SCORE is a volunteer group of executives from another century who are going to help you be better at what you do, even though they don't know what you do and they've never done it. Okay, a little cynicism here. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. That's the orthodoxy that we're talking about. Um, I can't tell you the number of 
places I've been to where the, you know, it's a, the white coat syndrome, you know, in our culture, you know, somebody's got a white coat with a clipboard, they must be in charge and must know what they're doing, or nobody would have given them a white coat. Well, as an entrepreneur, if you're going to be successful, if I had to give advice to anybody here, and this is based on my experience, because I have lost a tremendous amount of money experimenting. Okay. <laughs> and, and it's not failure, experimenting, gaining wisdom that number one, you have to know yourself, know your capabilities and limitations as an entrepreneur. This is critical because your errors and mistakes, particularly with money ripple at warp speed today, case in point last week, if you were living under a rock and didn't know there was a bit of a meltdown on the crypto side. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Terra Luna went from one of the most touted, highly valued cryptocurrencies in the world on everybody's top 10 list to zero, zero value in 24 hours. Now it's kind of coming back and kind of that stuff. A few years back, that type of scenario would have taken days, maybe weeks, even months to play out. So you have to understand that technology is your friend, but it's also leverages both ways. You've got to be in a position that you have more information, more data than we ever had possible, more than you are we're capable of assimilating. And data is not knowledge. Um, sometimes you don't have to be the bloody end of the spear. You know, Ray Krakow is not the first guy to make hamburgs. Um, there's a reason we put junior raking people out walking point, right, Jason? Anyhow, that's another yeah. story. Right? <laughs> that's right. Well, I, I call it, I call it, you can, you can live on a couple of different edges, right? Yeah. You can be on the leading edge or you can be on the bleeding edge, right? Right. The, right. the bleeding edge is where you're taking all the arrows in the back and yeah. the, the, the leading edge is just, eh, well, you're kind of keeping along, uh, yeah. keeping up with the, uh, the rest of the market and so on and so forth. But, but any, anyway, uh, Philip, I know you got a question that you want to drop. Um, this is the big finale. Uh, this is the question that brings the whole conversation, uh, together. And, uh, I hope that you indulge Ted. It, it's, uh, if you could have invited anybody today that are alive to sit here and listen to everything you just shared with us, maybe even contribute to the conversation, who would you have loved to have had here and why? Oh, Marcus, Marcus Aurelis. Oh, yeah. Stoic, huh? Good choice. Yeah, Good the choice. Stoic. Um, kind of the guy that codifies everything, I think, and to the point that I even started reading Latin in the original so I could read some of his stuff. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you know, warrior monk here. Um, no, I, <laughs> it is. I've been always, I've always been fascinated with leadership and, and, and behavioral disciplines and always presented that this is new and different and we've never dealt with this before. When in reality, we are dealing with the same problems our ancestors did two or 3,000 years ago. I mean, it all, and that's why I said open mind, sense of humor, humanity. Humans are humans. What is different is the environment, the context, the technology. Marcus Aurelis was facing the same problems Jason felt, Jason dealt with, with who's the army of Fort Capital, Campbell that I did in the, in the Marine Corps that we do as entrepreneurs. The guy back in 
ancient Greece, ancient Rome, that was trying to figure out how to feed his family is dealing with the same issues we're dealing with today. I just like the stoic approach. I like the mentality. I like what's going on. I would love to have had an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with that guy. Yeah. Now, um, I and I, I agree with that. I, I want to make sure that we get this in as a reiteration. Where would you prefer for people to get in touch with you if they love what they heard and they're like, I got to talk to Ted? Yeah, um, tedmcclyman.com is my author site. That's got everything you ever need to know about me, how to contact me. But, um, you know, my goal right now at this time in my life is I want to change the dialogue on, on, on money. We need to move from product and service to behavior. And entrepreneurs, this is critical because you're going to discover this yourself one way or the other. You might as well figure out it early, not later. It'll save you a bundle. It'll also help you make sure you're, you're, you're at the, you know where the pointy end of the stick is to use uh, Jason's metaphor. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's the bloody edge, the leading edge, but some people don't even know where the pointy edge is. So you know, keep that perspective in line, but we're dedicated. I'm dedicated right now to give, help you understand what makes you tick with money to move, not only from financial success, whatever that means to behavioral financial wellness, which means it all comes together. It all ticks and all points you in the right direction. And it's hit on all cylinders, or I guess we have to say EV electrical batteries, or whatever now. Uh, <laughs> right on. Uh, Ah, Ted, man, I, I can I can feel how much knowledge you have to share with the world, and uh, that's why I'm glad that they now know where they can get a hold of you, because there's no way people can learn all this in just an hour. But they can start by listening to this, by getting your book from Amazon, and checking out your website and finding other ways to contact you. Would you agree? Yes. Yep. It's tedmcclyman.com. All right, Ted. Thank you so much for stopping by, Jason. Any final words? No, just uh, thanks for taking the time to, uh, I always tell people we got 168 hours in a week. Thank you for spending one of them with us today um, and uh, being a part of our journey and a part of what we're trying to do to make our little footprint where we can. So thanks for being here. I love it. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the War Room Roundtable with your hosts, Jason Miller and Philip Llanos. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advising on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates. And always remember, if you can dream it and believe it, then you can go achieve it. We'll see you in the next episode.